You are listening to the Mission Matters Podcast Network, where we amplify the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and experts. Hey, hey there, everyone. I'm Ken Goldberg. Welcome back to Leveling the Playing Field, where we debunk myths, fallacies, and misunderstandings about markets, investing, and risk. Today, we're going to talk about a subject, a topic that's so scary, most won't even address it. And that is the concept of zombies in our portfolios. No, not necessarily the walking dead like the movies portray, but in this case, the the walking dead companies. So let's define what a zombie is according to Wall Street. Zombie companies are companies who cannot service their debt from their operations. In other words, they can't pay the interest on the debt that they have. And so in order to do that, in order to pay their debt, they have to continually borrow more to pay their current debt. In fact, they have to increase their debt, sell more bonds, borrow more money, just so they can pay off their current creditors. Now, this is an interesting chart. If you'll scroll down to chart number one, which should be labeled zombie companies, this is the Russell 3000 index. Those are the 3000 biggest companies in the US. And you can see that we are currently sitting at 24% of the index. Think about that. That's about 740 of the Russell 3000 companies that are classified as zombie companies. In other words, they're not able to service their own corporate debt through their own operations. Hmm, quite an interesting topic. This is a chart brought to you by our friends at, well, Elliott Wave International, plus with data from the Luthold Group and some other sources. You'll see them posted on the bottom. But The concept here is that ever since the 2002 or so bottom of the dot-com bubble, when markets crashed from 1999 until 2002, you can see this steady stream of growing amounts of companies qualified as zombies. It's a horrible condition to be in if you're a company where you're not able to survive without borrowing money. It kind of seems like something our kids might do who just continually ask for more and more money and don't go get jobs. Hmm. But let's move on. I wanted to talk not just about the zombie apocalypse brewing, as this chart names, in the Russell 3000 But if you go to the next chart, this is the scary one because this shows that the pseudo-government agencies known as Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the big mortgage lenders that got so decimated in the 2007 through 2009 declines, you can see here that those declines back then, the great financial crisis, which is what 2008 and nine are known as, took 99.7% off of Freddie Mac, 
the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, and 99.8% out of the valuation of Fannie Mae, the Federal National Mortgage Association. And only because of the government's bailout are these companies still alive. In fact, they're doing it again. Look, from the bailout low in 2009 or so, these companies rose back up. And again, from the about 2015 or so peak, they're down another 94.2% for Freddie Mac and 94.5% for Fannie Mae. That's two 95 or greater percent crashes in the past 15, 16 years. What are they doing wrong? What's going on? Well, it turns out that their portfolios are full of mortgages that don't necessarily stand up for themselves. In other words, there's a lot of borrowers that even though housing prices have risen and stock valuations have gone up and net worth in general, we're told, has increased, there's a lot of trouble still with people's accountability with the amount of money they're borrowing. So here are two governmental agencies that are so far down again, 94.2 and 94.5% respectively. And we haven't even gotten broad agreement that the current recession is in fact a recession. It is a recession. By definition, it's a recession, which is two negative GDP readings in a row. So we have that. But no one's really talking about the recession. And here is why, because imagine what a recession would do to these governmental agencies that represent trillions and trillions of dollars. These are portfolios that are buried in the dark secret doors of the government and the Federal Reserve where secret bailouts are taking place. Kind of scary. Speaking of scary, look to the third chart. The third chart is a graph of the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Negative Yielding Debt Market Value. Now, what does all that mean? Well, into late 2021, in fact, into kind of 2019, and then you can see a drop, and then back up into early 2021, and then a drop, and then another rise into late 2021. This was the amount of negative yielding bonds that were being issued around the world. Now, what is a negative yielding bond? Let's talk about that. It's kind of like a zombie company that can't survive on its own operations. It has to borrow in order to pay its debt. Negative yielding bonds are even more ludicrous. Check it out. If you buy a bond, then you give money you lend money to a entity or person, and that is going to pay you interest. So a negative yielding bond would be you loaning money to somebody else and you having to pay them. So instead of you getting interest, that would be a positive yield. A negative yielding bond is when you give someone money, you loan someone money, and you have to pay them for your ability to loan them money. I mean, it's almost impossible to explain. It's even harder to understand. Yet look, up into late 2020, 
and early 2021, there were $18 trillion of these negative yielding bonds throughout the world. $18 trillion. That's unbelievable. The fact that people would lend other people money or lend governments money or lend corporations money and have to pay for the right to lend somebody money is really beyond belief. And that's why you can see up there at the top, I have noted that's where DSE warned to its clients. It warned throughout the social media sphere that we post articles to that a disaster was looming because you cannot continue to create and float an environment where you have to pay people to take your money. I mean, look, you loan them money because you want a return. So why would you loan someone money when you don't get a return? In fact, you have to pay to loan them money. Again, it's so ludicrous, I can barely even get the sentence out. I can barely even make sense of it so that I can explain it. But yet, here we go. And as you can see there, also labeled on the left, the bubble has popped. $18 trillion at the all-time high is, check it out in the lower right-hand corner, zero. That's $18 trillion that is no longer in existence, wiped out, gone, kaput, fini, zilch. It's not there anymore. It's lit on fire and burned away. So again, what am I doing? I'm drawing a picture of how extreme the world has become and how not even close to bear market bottom we currently are. Speaking of that, let's go to the fourth chart. The fourth chart is very near and dear to all of us, of course, because many of us have homes. And what this shows is the predictive behavior of the top chart onto the bottom chart. The top chart is existing home sales, the number of sales, not price, just the number of transactions. And as you can see, that peaked last time there was a blow-off, last time there was a house mania in 2005, and it slid for six years. Now, what happens after that? Well, look down below that, and we can now see the U.S. existing home price as well. So the number of sales peak in September of 05, and the, the price peaked in July of 06. Okay, that's a little price lag. And what it allows us to do is use the turndown in the number of sales to predict and warn what's about to happen in the price. And in fact, it's happened again. You can see over on the right side now that the number of sales in the most recent housing mania peaked in January of 2021, two years ago. The price, as you can see straight below that, peaked in June of 2022. So there was about a 14, 15, 16 month lag again in price decline once the number of sales rolled over. Now, if this current slide, which is even steeper, look up on top to the number of sales, the current slide in number of sales is even steeper than the 2005 slide in number of sales. Look where the price is on the graph at the bottom. The graph 
shows that price just started to fall. Now it's falling pretty steep, I have to grant you that. And what we can see is that blue line in the bottom chart, that blue line that kind of smooths out the up, down, up, down, up, down line, that is what's known as the 12-month moving average. Now, you can see back to the left in July of 2006, it took a couple of months. It took even longer than that. It took about two years of declining price to turn the blue line down. And when the blue line turned down, that didn't mean that prices were bottoming. That's when prices accelerated. The losses, the drops in price started to be steeper then. And so what this is telling us is that the 15 or 20% across the country decline in stock prices, sorry, in home prices that we've seen since June, right? Most markets are down 15, 20%. Some are down much more. Manhattan, high-end real estate in Manhattan and San Francisco, places like that. But there is much more damage to come. And in fact, I've taken the liberty of putting the black dashed lines lower on the bottom graphic here to show what is likely coming. What does that mean? Let me kind of pull it into perspective here. Well, first of all, if the current drop in prices mimics the last drop in prices, I'm looking at the bottom chart on the left, that was about a six-year slide. And since we just peaked in June of 2022, six years from now, that would be summer of 2028. Here I have it as 2027, but it doesn't matter. Let's say five to seven years of falling house prices in the U.S. would be typical. Well, what would that mean? How bad could that get? Well, unfortunately, Unfortunately, it could get pretty bad. And the reason that I say that is because this housing bubble was bigger than the last housing bubble. Look at the price difference, right? In 2006, prices on average peaked about $225,000. Then they dropped down to about 175000 by 2012. And then they rose up to $425,000 at the summer's high almost doubling the high of 2006. So what we've been looking at and what many trends are starting to point at and what history typically shows is that halfway down is where we would expect prices to come. In other words, you take the low of $175,000 per average house in 2012, you take the high of $400,000, you split that difference, that's about two hundred and $30,000 difference from low to high, and you cut that in half. 230 divided by two, that's 115000 So where was the last time the average home price was more close to 300000 Well, that would be somewhere around 2018, give or take. So how bad could real estate get? Go back in your tax records and look at your appraisal for 2018. That's not a bad place to start, but in fact, it should be worse this time. And that's why I brought that black arrow down all the way down to the green box. We could fall in price all the way down to the 2007 peak, right before that last housing crash into 
2012 or so. And if that were the case, then prices have a long way to fall. And if you need to sell your house in order to finance your retirement or your charitable giving or your education funding for children or grandchildren, if you need, if you're betting on your house value remaining at last year's level in order to do something, retire, fund your retirement, whatever, retire early, then this gives a potential, if you're willing to look at it, to how dire a situation can become. Now, remember that the government is still kind of ignoring the fact that we've entered recession. They're continuing to raise interest rates, and raising interest rates is just making the recession worse. It's going to be potentially deepening and worsening the recession. Why is that? Because the higher interest rates go, the less easy it will be. The population at the margin, the population that doesn't have excess money and needs to borrow and needs to zombieize their their buying, you know, in order to acquire goods without the money to pay for them, it makes it harder for the people at the margin who do need that funding to gain credit, to continue their buying. In some cases, to have money for rent, to have money for food, new cars, even used cars. So the continuation of the government's program to hike interest rates is not good for the economy. It's perhaps even the cause of what's to come. So with that in mind, we now have some forward planning that we can use to make some financial decisions. For instance, like I just said, if you are planning on using the sale of a home or real estate to finance something that you want to do or need to do in the next five to 10 years, then every year between now and then, you may see that your house valuation or your home valuation or your portfolio of homes valuation is declining. And the only way to keep that from happening, there's two ways. First of all, the economy can fix itself somehow magically and turn back up and new price highs can be seen in those assets. The other way for that to happen is for the economy to falter and become worse and take a broad and unwavering and general ugly paintbrush and paint all over us what a recession means. And most of us haven't really lived through a deep recession. We've had little recessions from time to time, but we haven't really lived through a big, dark, ugly recession. And because of the extent of the debt that we now have, that I've mentioned before in previous episodes, the amount of student debt, the amount of credit card debt, the amount of housing debt, the fact that 40 something, 40% plus of American households are living paycheck to paycheck, those are not good numbers when the economy is only six months or so into an official recession, and they typically last two to two and a half years, which means that a year and a half from now, things are going to look worse, be worse, the conditions are going to be worse, 
unemployment will be much higher. And those all told do not bring very much good cheer, let's say, and hallucination about the good old days back. In fact, the good old days are were good. They were great. They were fantastic. But they're old and we're not there anymore. So we have to really use things like this. The data that I bring to your attention today, the reason that I brought them in chart formation rather than just rattle off data is because until you see them, until you see what's happened in the past into the history of these um, occurrences, we tend to forget. We humans are very deep practitioners of what's called the recency effect. In other words, we take the recent experience, in most of our cases, good, right? The markets have been rising, house prices rising, jobs are good, things like that. We take our most recent experience and we project it into the future. That's called the recency effect. Well, it's been good. It'll probably be good for a while. The problem with that is that keeps us from managing risk. It oftentimes makes us a little bit too arrogant at work. We often see people start to get lazy. They stop worrying about top achievement and really peak performance. And bosses start to take notice. And when it's time for companies to cut employees, those are the people that get cut. And so we have to really be careful about that. That's the recency effect. Well, things are good. My job's okay. My boss doesn't really bother me. I don't really need to work harder. Well, there are always people that are new to the company, that are new to working. And they're out there busting their butt and working hard. And when it push comes to shove and a company has to cut numbers, cut overhead, cut staff, they're going to cut the underperforming staff, not the super performing staff. What else does that tell us? Well, if we have these thoughts about buying a new house, well, this is the type of data that allows us to relax a little bit. We don't have to go chase price like we've been chasing prices for the past five years. If we need to sell a house, that might be where we want to light a little fire under ourselves and get that going. If if I had a house that I needed to sell in the next three to five years, for sure three years, I'd be selling it as fast as I possibly could right now. Because likely, you can see how long it took just in this last chart, look at the bottom, from July of 2006, it took till 2016 for prices to return to the 2006 level, 10 years before prices return. So push that forward. If we've actually just seen a peak in June of 2022, as this chart shows, where the average price of a house is $425,000, and it takes 10 years to get back to that, well, that doesn't fit if you need that money in the next three to five years. If you need the value that your home or your property that you're going to fund something was last year, and it drops for the next three to five years, and then takes three to five more years or longer to get back to last year's peak value, what does that do to your plan? So if that's possible, if it's possible that you need that, then you need to make a new plan. You need to have a plan of selling it right now real fast so you can maintain as much of that value as possible. 
or you need to perhaps change your plan. So now we get into this issue of admitting that we're wrong and the fear of making the decision, right? Because here's the fear. What if I sell the house and then it turns back up immediately? Well, prices are only, if you're lucky, 10 to 15% off of peak pricing of 2021, 2022. Maybe they're a little bit lower, but let's say even if they're 15 to 20%, if you can get 15 to 20% of your peak value now, and you don't have to see that potential value drop 30, 40, or 50%, then look how ahead you are. So there's one potential pathway. So again, what was the fear? The fear of selling now and having the price go back up. Okay, but what about the fear of not selling now and having to sit through that devastating decline in price? So these are the types of decisions that you have to make if you're not accustomed to making these types of situational decisions, if you're not good at weighing out risk versus return of of action, then seek help from your professionals. Ask your broker, ask your financial planner. Feel free to ask us. You can reach me at DSE, sorry, Ken at DSETrading.com. And we are happy to be of service however we can. So what I want to do now is thank you so much for listening to our podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there. We so, so appreciate you taking the time to listen to ours. Please feel free to forward this to those of you that have friends or relatives that are thinking about some of these concepts and maybe don't already listen to our podcast, let them know that there's help in the decision-making process available, that there's data that's not being shown to them on the nightly news. And if we can help, we absolutely want to, and that's what we're here for. So please take the chance and moment and time to follow us, to download our podcast so that uh, you can be notified when we come out with new ones, which is typically every Thursday. And we will join you again next week. Until then, we got you. This has been a Mission Matters Network production. Listen to this show and browse our entire catalog by visiting missionmatters.com.